tell you, if you've been around church for a while, you know the book of Jonah. A reluctant missionary is told by God to go to a faraway place called Nineveh. Jonah doesn't like it. And what does he do? Instead of uh, going and following God and obeying God's commands, this reluctant missionary says, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. And of course, we know he gets on a boat, which we'll learn about more next week. But Jonah then gets into the boat and and a storm begins to uh, affect the boat and the sailors that are in it. And word gets out, of course, that uh, through a conversation Jonah has with these sailors that the reason for this storm is because Jonah is running away from God. And of course, uh, after uh, some dialogue between him and the sailors, Jonah is thrown overboard and we think that Jonah is going to uh, end, or lose his life in the water. But of course, we know that God uh, predestines a big, great fish or a whale to swallow up Jonah. And uh, we'll learn more about the story as we go on. But we've heard about this story, Jonah and the whale. We've learned about it since we were young in uh, Sunday school. We've learned about it, of course, through the Veggie Tale movie. Uh, we know this story, but I want us to know it all the more. Because if you know about Jonah and the whale, and, and that's about it, and everything else is fuzzy, then I will tell you, the whale is not the story. In fact, I'll be honest with you, Jonah in many ways is not the story. The main character of Jonah is God himself. And that's what I want to pull from this series, is to understand the heart of God. I want us to immerse ourselves in this book. We're going to be in here for the rest of the summer, and we want to immerse ourselves to understand a little bit more about Jonah, but not just about this man that lived a couple thousand years ago, but I want us, as we look at the life of Jonah, to see ourselves. Because as we go through this text, you are going to see, as I have seen, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. There's a little bit of that reluctant missionary in all of us. And today we look at that man who's a runaway from God. Well, let's go ahead and look to Jonah chapter 1 this morning. As you would uh, turn there, if you don't know where the book of Jonah is at, Jonah is in the last, uh, really the last 10% of the Old Testament. It's a little harder to get to than most books in the Bible, but if you go through uh, about Psalms and Proverbs, about halfway through the Old Testament, you're going to get into the uh, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are all the major prophets. And then you're going to get to a whole bunch of names that you've probably not seen before. And uh, in the middle of those, of course, is the book of Jonah. So we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we get into this text and see what God has to teach us this morning. This is what it says, Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Father God, again, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for uh, the life of Jonah. Lord, we thank you for the recording of Jonah. We don't know who wrote this. It could have been another prophet. It could have been Jonah himself. But we do know that there is great worth in this book because it finds itself within the canon of scripture 
So, Lord, we thank you for the life that this man lived, the good and the bad that it was involved in his life, so that we can look at the good and bad in our lives as well. So open our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, allow us to uh, meditate on your word in a new way as we look at this very familiar story that we would be able to apply truths that we've never seen before. In Christ's name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. When I was about 10 years old, I, I'm a little foggy on when it exactly happened, but I would have thought I would have been 10 years old. I remember having a line of arguments with my parents. It seemed to everything that we talked about, I'd be in disagreement with them. It was about the time where I felt that I should be able to spread my proverbial wings of adulthood, that I should be able to do things. I remember at 10 years old, uh, we lived out in the country, and all my friends lived in the town of Hinckley, and they would talk about all the great things that they were able to do, and it was summertime, and, and as a 10-year-old, I felt that I should be able to get on my bike and be able to ride the mile and a half into town, but my parents would say, no, absolutely not, you're too young. I'd say, but I have no friends and there's nothing else to do. And they would say, well, when you get older, you'll be able to do that. And I remember during that conversation, and, and this was one of many, that the, these words came out of my mouth. Well, I, I want to be able to make my own decisions. I'm a big man. I'm a, I, I should be treated like an adult. And my dad said, well, when you get old enough and, and move out of the house, you can make all the decisions you want. And I looked at him, and I'm surprised he didn't just laugh when I said this, but I said, you just watch, it will be sooner than you think. Little did I know I would live there for another 12 or 13 years. But that began to work in my heart, and, and after, again, another, uh, just frustrating arguments with my parents, I made the decision I had had enough. I was going to move out. I was going to run away. And so I packed some of the important things that a 10-year-old needs, the things that aren't very important if you're going to survive a long-term trip away from mom and dad. I had no food, no water. I had my baseball, my favorite baseball cards. I had a couple other things that I thought were important. Of course, no toothbrush or change of clothes. But I was going to run away. So I began to walk down the street, and I had told them at different times, even left a note. I don't know where the note's at now, but it said something like, I'm tired of following your rules, and uh, it is time for me to be my own man, or something like that. And I headed out, and I thought for sure, and I remember walking down the road that they're going to miss me. They're going to send out people to look for me. Pretty soon there'll be helicopters in the air, there will be police all over the place, and I will have shown them. I don't know how far I walked, maybe a half a mile, maybe a mile. I kind of got tired. It was a hot day. And, and I said, well, if I go too far, then they won't know where to find me. And so I, I, I better find a place that is a little closer to home. And so I started to head back through uh, one of the fields. And I said, I will hide instead of run away. I'll hide in the shed. We had this little, uh, you know, 10 by 12 shed in the back of our yard. And this was late afternoon, probably early evening. 
And I put myself in the shed. Now, we had this little uh, vent thing at the top of the, the shed where uh, the three boys used to hang out at the attic of the shed. And we, we could look out this uh, little window, this vent that they had. And I watched, and, and, and it had to be, at least for a couple hours, no movement. No one moved. There was no interaction. Where is Tim? Where did he go? There were no milk cartons being printed with my face on them. There was nothing. I was a bit concerned. I said, man, I I thought my parents cared about me. I thought that they, you know, would send out search parties and that people would be out looking, yelling my name, Tim, Tim, where are you? Uh, But none of that. So after sitting in the shed for a couple hours, it started to get dark. And I don't know if you know this, but when it gets dark, the monsters come out. And I remember sitting there saying, okay, they're going to come out because I haven't come home yet. It's getting dark and that's when they'll start to look. Well, it's now pitch black. It's dark out. And I see all the lights in the house turning off. I'm like, oh man, this is not how I envisioned my running away from home. And then the noises started to come. You know, those things, you're not quite sure of what they are. They sound like wild beasts in the field and, and all that. And, and I started to, quite frankly, get freaked out. It's time for me to go home. And so I go, grab all my stuff, come out from the attic of the shed, and I head inside, and everybody is asleep. I mean, this is destroying my ego. And I remember coming, my room was right across from my parents' room, and I'm walking, and before I can even get to my room, I hear my father's voice, and he says, You got tired of living out in the shed, did you, son? (laughs) At ten years of age, you don't think about how your dad knows that. I was floored. Well, a couple a couple years later, my mom and dad brought it up. That was one of the funniest things that they had ever seen. They said they sat and watched from the kitchen window me walk along the field with this little bag, and they thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And then they saw me come back through the backyard, go into the shed, and they sat there and they said, we didn't watch TV that night because we just watched the shed and watched and asked the question, how long would it be before Tim comes to his senses? I wonder if there was a wager going on between my mom and dad. But you know what? I I wanted to tell the world that it was my decision. I wanted to tell the world I didn't have to obey anybody but myself. And so what did I think I would do? I would run away. Now, I didn't run away like you would normally hear of running away because I'm an abnormal child. But I ran away nonetheless because I wanted independence. I wanted to be able to be the captain of my own vessel, the captain of my own life's voyage. And yet, just like Jonah, we find ourselves running from God. Now, here's the amazing thing. I had this idea that my decision of walking away, leaving the family, would induce this incredible um, response And little did I know that the response wasn't what exactly I thought it would be. But one thing I learned was that my father's eye was always on me. He knew everywhere that I was at all times. 
You know, what we're going to learn today is that Jonah hears from God and he doesn't like what he hears from God. And so he says, you know what? It would be better off that I just run away. In fact, he heads in the opposite direction of where he was called. And he runs thinking that will produce a response that will be better than what I thought I would have in the first place. And it's not the case. Just like me as a little boy. But one thing that is true, just as my father's eye was always on me, we will see that God's eye is on his prophet, on his child. And so today we look at running from God. Now you would say, Tim, I've never run away from home. Tim, I've never run away from God. And no, maybe you haven't. You've never packed your bags and said, I am going to head in the different direction of what God has said. But there's no doubt that we as Christians run away from God spiritually all the time. The great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The author pens these words, which I think is true of Jonah and us as well. He says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that true of us? Even though we say we love God, and there's no question that Jonah loved God. He was a prophet of God. He was a man enlisted to speak on behalf of the Lord. This guy loved the Lord, but he left the Lord. My friends, today there are many of you that are sitting in your pews today, and you, just like Jonah, have left God. You've left him. For whatever reason, whether it was something that a a preacher said or something you read in the Bible or something that uh, God has commanded for you to do and you say, I can't do it and so I'll go and I'll try to live my life on my own. I'm going to stop attending church. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to stop fellowshipping with other believers and you, just like Jonah, have run away from God. How do we remedy that? How do we keep from that? Because we have that tendency. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, sheep can find themselves going astray because of one of two reasons. Number one, they just get lost. They're dumb animals. And sometimes we are a lost people. We, we, we don't have the full understanding of where we're to go or, or what we're to do. And so fi- we find ourselves sometimes away from the pack of God. But that's not Jonah's life. Jonah's life isn't that he got lost, that that he looked on his uh, map and he thought he was heading in this direction, but because of some bad directions, he found himself in a place away from where he was intending to go. That's not Jonah. There are some today who find themselves uh, in a place that they didn't think they would be in, not because of a willful decision, but maybe because of some bad directions. But Jonah, he made a decision to disobey God. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we keep from doing that as well? There are three things that I want us to look at from this incredible book. As we look at the beginning of this book, some have written some of the most glorious words about this book of Jonah. I like what Martin Luther said about the book of Jonah. He called it a literary masterpiece. He said it was some of the best writing ever done. Like I said in my prayer, we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. We're not sure. We can believe because of some of the things that it was it was Jonah himself, but we do not know. But what we do know is that this story of Jonah is a true story. This isn't a make-believe story. 
There are many liberals and many individuals who want to denounce the word of God. And one of the first places they will go is to the book of Jonah and say that this can't have happened. There's no way this could have taken place, that God does all these things and that there would even be a great fish. Liberal uh, theologians had scientists look at all the different um, kinds of fish during that time, and they say there's no way that there could have been a fish big enough to eat an individual, swallow an individual. And so they say the story must be false. But write down this passage, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, we get all the validation we need about the book of Jonah. There is nothing more than this that we need to say that this is a true story. In Matthew chapter 12, verses, or chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, Jesus himself speaks of Jonah and says emphatically that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so the Son of Man will spend three nights in the grave. Jesus believed it to be a true story, and that is all the validation that we need. This is true. This is applicable to you and I, not just some fanciful story we tell our children, but one that we apply because the Word of God is living and active and all Scripture is God-breathed, including the book of Jonah. So as we look at this true story and we look at this idea of running from God, three things I want us to pull from this morning. The way we remedy this issue of running away from God is first seen by recognizing our similarities with a certain man called by God. We need to look at the similarities of Jonah who was called by God and to us as well. Now notice what it says in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Well, there's not that big of an introduction. There's no fireworks that go off. There's this no big biography that is given. We don't know much about Jonah. But what we do know about Jonah allows us to see a little bit into his life and how he acted and how he lived. And I want to look at that and see three things that show us similarities between him and ourselves. The first thing I want us to see is our common backgrounds. Our common backgrounds. The first time we hear about Jonah isn't in the book of Jonah, but in fact it is in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings tells us in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 25, I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. 2 Kings ver- uh, chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, and I apologize if I butcher some of these names. This is what it says. In the 15th year of uh, um, Amaziah, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. That's the first time we hear about it. So we hear that this man, Jonah, son of Amittai, was a prophet. 
Now we understand that. He's a prophet. He's under the reign of Jeroboam who reigned from 781 to 746 BC, about 750 years before Christ. Now uh, Jonah served the northern kingdom of Israel. Of course, during that time of the kings, we have a separation of the nation of Israel. Of course, Israel and Judah, that uh, now two kingdoms have taken place. Jonah is serving the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, it tells us from uh, from 2 Kings 14 that this man was from, Jonah was from a place called Gath-Hefer. Well, this place, Gath-Hefer, is not a well-known place. It's in the area of Galilee. In fact, it's 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. But nothing very important, nothing very uh, earth-shattering about this guy. That's the information that we have. We know his dad's name is Amittai, but we don't know what his dad does. We don't know anything about his mom. We don't have any understanding of whether he had brothers or sisters. All we know is that he's a son, he's a prophet. He lived in a place called Gath-Hefer, and he served under Jeroboam, the king. Now, what are we to do with this? What does this have to do with our common background? I want you to understand something today. As I looked at this scripture, we don't see very much about Jonah. We don't know if he was married, single. We don't know if he had kids or not. But all we know is that God brought a word to him. If you would have Googled Jonah today or back in his day, of course, you wouldn't have seen much about him. There have been very little about this man. And yet God is going to use this man. Now, Tim, what, what is that all about? What I want you to understand is maybe today you find yourself serving the Lord, but you say, you know, what good can God do through me? I'm just an average Joe. I'm just an average Jane. There's nothing special about me. Yes, I'm in a relationship with God. Yes, I believe God has called me to some things. But really, what am I going to do? God's not going to use an ordinary person like me. I want you to understand that the book of Jonah is about an ordinary guy. He's just like all of us. There's nothing great about Jonah from what we see in Scripture. But it isn't what Jonah made himself, but it was what God made through Jonah. You see, if you're ordinary, just as I am ordinary, there's not much about who we are. We need to recognize that God takes the ordinary people in life and allows them to do the extraordinary things. God would take this ordinary guy that not much is written about and he would take them and he would use him in a powerful way. So don't ever say, you know what? I can't serve God in the great ways as people in the Bible do. They're just ordinary people. And yet we look at the scriptures and we see God never calls those that themselves are the popular ones or those that have all the credentials. One of the great phrases that I love that I've constantly gone back to in these five years of of being in this uh, role is that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. If you really believe that with your heart, then there is the sky is the limit on what you can do for God. But if you keep thinking, I can't do anything because I am just an average person, then you will only do average things because you're doing them in your own strength. The next thing that we see about this man, Jonah, is that we have a similarity to him in regards to the baggage that we all carry. We see as while there's little detail about this man, Jonah, he carries some baggage. Now, 
I don't mean luggage. I mean baggage, the proverbial word that we use that speaks about that we have issues. We have dysfunction. All of us carry this baggage around. They come under different names. They come because of different reasons. But all of us are frail and we have failings in our lives. Well, this was true of Jonah as well. I want you to write down some of these uh, areas of baggage that Jonah carried. First of all, it seems from Scripture that Jonah was a racist. Jonah hated the people that God was calling him to. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was a city in northern Iraq where the people called the Assyrians lived. Now, I don't know why you would hate an Assyrian. You know, Assyrians are good people. They're good-looking. they got great senses of humor. And uh, I don't know why you'd hate them, but Jonah did. If you don't know why I'm speaking so well of Assyrians, talk to your neighbor. They'll tell you what I mean by all that. But Jonah hated them. He wanted to see them destroyed. And so he had this streak of racism. Commentaries tell us that Jonah was a nationalistic prophet. He wanted to see Israel put back on the map when it came to the nations of the world. And so he struggled with anybody who was not of God, who was not of Israel. But notice what we see next. It wasn't that he was just a racist, but we see he lacked compassion. In Jonah chapter 4, we see that Jonah heads out outside of the city after the city has been a part of this incredible revival. They've turned to God. You would think Jonah would be happy. God used them to be a part of the greatest evangelistic revival recorded in all of Scripture. And what does he do? He takes his lawn chair, heads out from the city, parks himself so he can see the city, and has a front row view of watching God destroy the city. He's hoping still, even though they turned to God, that God would destroy him. Why? Because he lacked compassion. God would ask him, why Why don't you care about the, he says in chapter 4, the 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left. A lot of commentaries believe that was speaking of the children in Nineveh. He even goes on, he says, you don't even care about the cattle, the livestock that I'm about to destroy. Now, You may say, Tim, I don't mind seeing my enemies destroyed, but I would pray that you would have enough compassion to be able to say, I don't want to see children be destroyed or, or, you know, uh, the livestock. What did the livestock have to do with all this? And they were all going to be destroyed by God. And and Jonah's there and he's loving it. Just kill every one of them, burn them, destroy them. He lacked compassion. The next thing that we see is he's a bit selfish. If you look from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4, you will find streaks of selfishness. Jonah's worried about himself. Jonah's worried about what is going to happen to him, not others. He hears that God is going to destroy a city and he doesn't care because the world revolves around himself. The final thing that I see, it's my favorite one, is a bit of a drama queen. This prophet Jonah is a little overdramatic. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 for a moment. Okay, this guy struggles with racism. He lacks compassion. He finds himself being a bit selfish. And now we see him overreacting and exaggerating uh, the drama in his life. Now notice what it says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, God was greatly displeased and became angry. 
This is what Jonah prays to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents, sending calamity. Now, oh, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. God shows compassion. The whole city of Nineveh uh, repents. They put themselves in sackcloth and ashes. The king himself says everybody should mourn over their sin. The prophet of God who was a part of this, who declared the message, comes out of Nineveh and he says, it's better for me to die. These Ninevites have been saved by you, God, and I just can't live anymore. What a drama queen. It gets worse. Now notice what it says. Now Jonah went out in verse 5. And sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God provided a vine and made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said again, I would be better for me. It would be better for me to die than to live. This guy's got some suicidal qualities about himself that he needs to get fixed up. A vine dies. A plant dies. And he says, it'd be better for me to die. This guy's got issues. This guy needs to go find the first psychologist in Nineveh to work through some of these issues. I don't know if his mother was mean to him or what, but this guy's got issues. This guy's carrying baggage. What's the application to that? God uses people with baggage, even the drama queens. God uses the selfish God uses uh, the frail. God uses the timid and weak-hearted. God uses those who even have a streak of racism in them. Now, I'm never going to articulate or say that God condones those things. Those were sins in Jonah's life. They were issues that he needed to deal with. But they did not disqualify God from using Jonah. God wants to use you. And you say, but I've got this issue. I've got that issue. God can't use me. God can use whoever he wants. And he does. He does. All throughout the scripture, we see unqualified individual after unqualified individual being used by God. So we see the baggage that we all carry doesn't disqualify us from the service to God. The final thing we see is his belligerence. He has an issue of belligerence towards God. As we explore this book, we're going to see a stubborn streak in Jonah. He will argue with God. He'll rebel against God's commands. He will do all that he can to keep from obeying God. This guy's a belligerent fella. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He's stubborn. Now, one commentary said, praise God for the stubbornness of Jonah. Because it would take a stubborn missionary to go before a hard-hearted people in Nineveh. And so God uses an area that in, in light of all the sin and struggle that he has, God could use this passion of belligerence. He would redefine, he would work with them. And you see God interacting, especially in chapter 4 of Jonah, he interacts with uh, Jonah about the, the stupidity of some of Jonah's concerns 
and issues. Maybe you find yourself today saying, God can't use me. And the reason why God can't use me is because I don't have a great background. I, I, I have a lot of baggage that I carry, and we've learned that God will use you in spite of that. But He will not use you until you are willing and able to stand before God and say, God, whatever you will have me do, I will do. And you say, well, didn't God use Jonah? Yes, but he put him in the belly of a fish. Now you would say, okay, God doesn't do that anymore. That's fine, but God brings people low all the time. God wrestles with people. He deals with them. He brings discipline in their lives because we ourselves are a belligerent people. We don't want to do what God has called for us to do. And just like Jonah, God will deal with us to bring us to a place of action. So we see, first of all, we need to make sure we understand the similarities. The next thing we see is that we need to respond biblically to the clear mandate that God gives. If we don't want to run away from God, we need to understand the story of one who did run away and understand how we're like him, how we do have the tendency to run away from God. But the next thing is, is that we need to look at the command that God gives and we need to respond to it. Notice what the text says in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. There's a couple of things I want us to understand from this. First of all, it says the word of the Lord came in verse 1. How did the word of the Lord come? We don't know. Was it an angel who came and talked to Jonah? Don't know. Was it Jesus Christ himself and what we call a theophany? No, we don't know. Was it a dream? We don't know. All we do know is that however God spoke to Jonah impacted him greatly. Whatever Jonah, whatever Jonah heard, whatever Jonah saw, Jonah knew it was from God and knew that God was serious about the calling. But we don't know what it looked like or how it all transpired. And so what are we to know and understand about this? The same thing we need to understand about ourselves. God speaks to us. He's speaking to us all the time through his word. The Bible says through a still small voice by the Holy Spirit who uh, speaks to us. And the question is, isn't how it comes, but are we seeing it from the Lord and are we responding to that word? Well, look at what Jonah was called to do, this mandate that he's given. It says that he is to go to the great city of Nineveh. The first thing that we see of this mandate is that it involved an action. Write that in your outlines. It involved an action. The action is he was to go. This wasn't something he could do where he was living. He had to go and be a part of it. Now, we need to understand something about this action. It involved getting up. The Hebrew there is the sense of Jonah having to get up and go. Some commentaries say that what it may have been is that Jonah had this come as a form of a dream. And that what Jonah is being told is that he's laying in bed and God says, arise. I know the ESV and I believe the NAS says this, arise and go. The NIV keeps that out. But the sense is, is that there's a sense of urgency. You need to get going. This is kind of like probably what you heard this morning uh, from your parents when you heard that you were going to the early service. Let's go. Get out of bed. Let's get moving. A sense of urgency because time is short and the mission is at hand. That's what Jonah is given. But where is he to go? We'll talk about this more later in the series, but he's to go to Nineveh, northern Iraq. Who were these people? They were the sworn enemies of God and Israel. So he was to get up and there was a sense of urgency to go to Nineveh where he would speak to the people who were his enemies. 
Now think for a moment about that. You would say, well, it's not that hard to get up and go. To go and say, well, I don't know where to serve. But what if God was to come to you today after service and he comes to you and you know God is speaking to you and God says to you, I want you to go to Iran and I want you to speak against the people or the, the sins of Iran. I know a lot of you would say, Are you kidding me, God? I'm not sure about that. There was no time for a second opinion in Jonah's life. He was to get up and he was to go. Notice there's an activity. What is he to do? He knows where he's supposed to go. He knows he needs to get there quickly. The next thing we see is that he has an activity. He is to preach. What this means is literally he was to go and open his mouth and articulate the word that God gave him. You'll see in chapter 3 that Jonah is told that he is to proclaim the message that the Lord gives. This wasn't him articulating his own message, but this was a message that God was going to give him to proclaim. What a wonderful reminder for people like myself. This is not my message, but God has given me a message that I am to articulate. I am to herald to all around. This idea of preach literally was a regal term that spoke about a king who would share a edict with his messengers. And instead of the king going to every person in the kingdom, he would line up his heralds, his messengers, and he would say, all right, this is what the king says. Now go and tell everybody. So these heralds would go out to the countryside and to all these cities and they would go into the marketplaces and they'd say, hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king. And that's what Jonah was to do. He was to bring forth a message that God had for the Ninevites. Well, what was the message? We see that it involved uh, standing against sin. This word literally, when it says that he was to uh, preach against it, this phrase in the Hebrew, Hebrew literally means he was to go inform the Ninevites of their sin, make it known to all the community, and to tell them that God knows about their sin as well. Okay, now, this is where I get a little more compassionate on the life of Jonah. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. You're going to preach to the enemies that you have. But what you're going to do is you're not going to go to Nineveh and preach a health, wealth, and happiness uh, kind of message. I could have done that. Go and tell the Ninevites that God loves them. God cares for them. They're, they're, they're number one in God's eyes. That'd be an easy message to preach. That if you follow this, then God will make you healthy. If you follow this, God will make you wealthy and wise. That'd be an easy message. But that's not the message that God gives Jonah. He is to preach against it. Now think about this. God calls you to your neighbor. And he says, I want you to preach against your neighbor and the wickedness that I see. Now, what would that look like? In the Hebrew, literally what that meant is you'd go to the neighbor. You would stand at his front door and you would begin to announce publicly your neighbor's sin. In front of all the other neighbors. Wow, what a response. Now, he's supposed to do this in a city that people believe was about 500,000 people. What a a mission God gave this guy. He's supposed to speak against it. This isn't wise for any outsider to do, to speak against a town, to make it known. 
He was to announce their sin. Literally, he was to speak against the sins that they had. Again, imagine going to Tehran and speaking against the Iranian people and saying, here are the issues that God has with you. And in front of all the people in Iran saying, you serve a God called Allah, but that is not the God who reigns over the universe. Away from this God, Allah, get rid of him and turn to God. What would happen? Uh, Preaching would be short. It would probably end very quickly and very badly for the preacher. And that's what Jonah had to have been imagining when he thought about the Ninevites. But that's what he's called to do. Now, how does that impact us today? I want us to understand something very clearly today. God has told us to go and preach. Where do we hear that? Of course, Matthew chapter 28, the great commission God gives. And so you find yourself today saying, I'm not like Jonah. Yes, you are. Your commission is just like Jonah. Go and preach. Where are we to preach? To all nations. Why? Because we are to speak and stand against the sin of the world. Why? Because the world and its sin has been made known to God. God's aware of it. And what is he going to do? Just what he was going to do to the Ninevites. There's a period of time when you can repent. But when that time is done, destruction will come. You know, we talk about, and rightly so, we talk about the gospel, the euangelion in the Greek, the good news of the, uh, of the message of Christianity. And yes, it is good news for those who believe. It would have been good news later on. The Ninevites would say, that was good news. Thanks, Jonah, for bringing us the good news. We repented, God relented, and it's all good. But what happens if they had not? The good news that we share in our workplaces, in our schools, isn't good news to the people around us. That's why they bristle. That's why they become so agitated. They say, this is not good news. Why? Because when you announce to the world and to people no matter how nicely you put it, that they're sinners and they're in need of being saved, you've just stood against them. And you've said, you know what? It isn't me that you got to deal with, but it's a holy God who says, I will destroy all those who will not bow the knee to my son Jesus. Doesn't sound like such great news when we put it in that place. Well, how are we to do that? Before I get to my final point, this morning. I want to give you some practical ways that you can start living that way. You say, Tim, does that mean I'm called to to preach messages of fire and, and hell and damnation? No, some people are called to do that. Some, there are some times where as a preacher, I'm called to do that. But you don't hear me every week say, if you are, if you're not with God, you're going to hell. Burn, baby, burn. You don't hear me say that. Because there's grace. There's an opportunity to give people a a picture of Christ and to articulate what Christ has done, but to always drive people to the need to repent. But does that mean we have to go and every time we go into the McDonald's, every time that we go into our school, that we announce to the school, we announce to the world that they're going to die or judgment's going to come and because of their sin, they're going to be destroyed? It's probably not the best way to go about it. Jonah was to do that because that was the mission God gave. But how can we do that? Jeremiah 24, just write this passage down. 24, I'm sorry, 29 verses 4 through 9 gives us five understandings of how a Christian can live a counter-cultural life. 
God tells us that as aliens and strangers, this is not our home. And that the culture that we find ourselves living in is countercultural to the culture God has for us. In fact, there are two kingdoms at work in this world right now. <clears throat> the kingdom that is being led by the devil and all the things that come with it, the uh, sin and the worldliness that comes as a result of following the devil and his schemes. And there's a kingdom of God. Now, we know that the kingdom of God is going to be the one that prevails. And so we need to live in light of the kingdom of God. We need to live as we should, as our God has told us to. But how are we to see that happen? I want to give you three things. Number one, you want to start changing the world you live in and not even articulate the gospel? Not that you shouldn't, but let's start here. Number one, love the people and the place that God has providentially placed you. Love the people and the place God has providentially placed you. Well, I love the people of Sugar Grove. Boy, would I love an opportunity. Don't I jump at the opportunity anytime anyone from my town asks me to do anything that involves proclaiming the gospel. Because I love that city. That's what I love about that new song. We were talking as a group of uh, teaching pastors that one of the songs we wanted to sing a couple weeks ago as we looked at this study of Jonah was the God of this city. I had never heard of the song before. I walk in on Sunday morning and what are we singing? The God of this city. I said, Lord, that's a bit uncanny. But listen to the words of that song. There is much to do in this city. And wherever you live, wherever God has placed you, you need to really love the people and the place that God's called you to. One of the great reformers said, give me Scotland or I'll die. Can we say that about Sugar Grove? Can we say we'll die unless souls are brought to uh, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? If we can't say that, then we're not living countercultural lives. We're living lives just like everybody else is worried about ourselves. We're just like Jonah. The second thing that we need to do is we need to become a stakeholder in the culture. We can't be isolated. What I mean by that is if you want to see God change lives, if you want the opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Christ, you can't be isolated. You need to be engaged in the community. This last January, I was asked to serve on the Hinkley Big Rock School Board. And it was something that I had so much uh, prayer involved in. And I'll be honest with you, I turned it down. And one of my biggest concerns about turning it down was I was so busy doing the work of the church that I didn't have time to engage culture. Here was a pagan group of individuals saying, we'd like you to serve. Think about serving. They had come to me and said, man, we'd like to have you a part of that. You've got a vested interest. Your kids are there. And Amanda and I prayed and prayed over it. And I don't know what that, what that decision will do. But one thing I did learn is I don't want to be so busy with doing church that I miss out on doing the mission that the church has been called to. Engage culture. That means being involved in baseball teams. That means uh, being involved in helping your kids and, and helping serve in the community, finding opportunities. That's one area you're going to see Village grow in. We have engaged the town and we have said, whatever you want us to do, we want to do it. If there's something we can do, if there's a way that we can serve, let us serve. We want to be a force in the community. I remember meeting with Kevin O'Brien uh, one time, and he asked the question of Keith and I. He said, let me ask you this of Village. If Village was to close up, would Sugar Grove and the surrounding communities miss you when you're gone? That's a great question. That's a question we all need to ask. If you're no longer in your neighborhood, are people going to even recognize that you're gone? Or will they say, oh, those people that we never see, they're not there. 
engage the culture that you live in. The next thing that we see in regards to this is we should show the world that while we are not perfect, that we will do all that we can to live Christ-like. What that's saying is, is you're not saying you're better than everybody else, but what you're saying is, is that, hey, this is the important way to live. This is important to us, so I'm going to live out my marriage. I'm going to live out my parenting. I'm going to work unto the Lord. That's why the New Testament talks about that. It takes doctrine, and then it takes us to our walk in life, and it says, based on the knowledge that we have of Christ, now we need to move and live in a way that honors that doctrine. We need to live like Christ in this culture. Next, we need to do good to both believers and unbelievers alike. We do a great job of serving one another here. But let me ask you the question. When was the last time you served someone in your community? When was the last time you served someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you done that? That's a way to engage culture. Maybe God hasn't called you to go and preach against the city, but you can still change the city through these things. Number five, don't fear the prevailing culture in our day. What I mean by that is don't become defensive. Don't become angry and don't demonize the culture. Even though the culture comes from the pit of hell, it is going to do you no good to come against the people and just sit there and shake your proverbial finger at them and say, you know what, you're a sinner, there's no hope for you, you're dirty, you're garbage. That ain't going to win anybody to the Lord. Why should we not worry about it? Because at the end of the day, isn't it that God says that he is greater than the one that's in the world? Doesn't he say that in the end he's going to come with myriads of his holy ones and exact judgment on this world? We don't have to worry about fighting for God's kingdom. God's kingdom is already won. On the cross of Calvary, when he said it was finished, the devil and all his thoughts and schemes were taken care of once and for all. So we fight in light of victory. We've already won the battle. Now let's love the people to Christ and speak to them the gospel of Christ, not just in word, but also in deed. Now you'd say, well, Tim, you don't know the situation I find myself in. And you may be right. But understand this. Put up the next slide, the phrase there. Understand this. God's commands are to be obeyed no matter how difficult or dangerous they may be. Now, Jonah had good reason to say, no way, Jose, I ain't going to do that, God. Nineveh is a a city of at least 500,000 people. It's a huge city. And he would say, what a difficult mission you've called me to. I am one man versus 500,000. God, there's no way I can exact any kind of change. Have you thought of that when you've been in school? I was the only Christian in my school for the first three years of high school that I knew of. And I used to say, what changes can I do? I'm one of many. There's no way I can exact change. And until I got that out of my mind and said, God, here I am, use me. It was then that God began to bring forth the opportunities to lead people to the Lord that when I finished high school, we had a Bible study going on. We had led many people to the Lord. Some of my friends now are in ministry as a result of me stop worrying about how difficult the mission was and just living it out. But you say, Tim, you don't understand. It's dangerous for me to do this. In your study guide this week, you're going to study the book of Nahum. Nahum talks about the Ninevites. God names them by name and he calls them a bloodthirsty people. He says that in their city there are piles of bodies, dead bodies, grotesque words. Why? Because the Ninevites were a brutal people. 
They killed, not only killed their enemies, they decimated their enemies. And, and he is called to go there. He says, the worst thing that can happen to me is they can laugh at me. The best thing that can happen is they can laugh at me. The worst thing they can do is make up ways to try to kill me. Maybe you find yourself in a difficult situation this morning. You need to understand, no matter how dangerous it is, God commands that we go. The final thing I want to look at this morning quickly is is that we need to also then uh, realize the trouble we find because of our miscalculations about God. Jonah hears the word from the Lord. Go to the Ninevites, preach against it. The command is clear. It's made fully under, it's fully understood by Jonah. And what does Jonah do? Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go the other way. Now we need to understand some things about this. Number one, just as the word of the Lord came and this idea of go, uh, in verse uh, two, this sense of urgency that I told you about in the, in the Hebrew, The same urgency is there in verse 3. If you underline or circle in your Bible, the NIV does a good job with this. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. The idea here is as quickly as he was supposed to run to Nineveh, he gets up and he runs away from God. Now this isn't again because of bad directions. He didn't have his GPS off. The thing that he did was he said, all right, God says go east, I'm going west. And with the same urgency that God told me to run east, I'm going to book myself west. I'm heading that way as quickly as possible. This is a miscalculation about God. Well, what's the miscalculation? That God would just let him do whatever he wants. A couple days ago, my son Joshua found himself uh, disobeying me. And I kept watching him and he knew I was watching him. And he knew what he was doing was wrong. And I wanted to see how long he would do it. And I could see in his, in his little mind, his little heart, that little evil heart that he has, that all children have. He's saying, I bet you I can get away with it. I'm going to get away with it. I know dad's looking right at me. And at a time that he didn't know, my hand met his backside. And he was like, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Why did that happen? I said, because you've been doing wrong. And he says, but why didn't you do it when I started? I said, why didn't you stop before you started? And then he's all confused. But uh, but we do that with God. God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And we make this calculation, God's not going to do anything. And that's what Jonah does. Now understand, this miscalculation is deliberate. Jonah made a decision. You need to understand that. He knew that it was a sin. He knew that he disobeyed God. And that as a result of disobeying God, there was deliberacy, a deliberance in his uh, in his uh, calculation, understand this: he he wasn't just testing the waters. He was wanting to see how far he could get away from God. The Bible says that if we know what is right and do not do it, we sin. The next thing we see is it comes as a result of being deceived. Very quickly, the NIV doesn't articulate this as clear as the ESV does. The ESV and uh, the NAS says that he fled, he ran away from the presence of the Lord. Two times in this paragraph it tells us that he flees from the presence of the Lord. Now what is he doing? He gets on a boat to head to Tarshish. Why does he head to Tarshish? Isaiah 66, 19 says that Tarshish was a place on the outskirts of the known world where the word of the Lord had not come yet. 
That's what Isaiah says. And that God will one day get to the places like Tarshish to share his gospel. This is a deliberate decision by Jonah. Jonah says, if I go somewhere where God has not been heard, then I can live in peace and not worry about God getting there. This is the miscalculation of a lifetime. This is why theology is so important. Jonah knew what it was said in Isaiah, um, Isaiah Psalm 139 Uh, verses 7 through 10. Can we flee from the presence of the Lord? What's the answer to that? No. God's everywhere. Can I go and, and to far off places and think that God isn't there? No. He's there and he's been there since all of eternity passed. And yet that's what Jonah thinks. If I go to where God hasn't spoken yet, then I can get away with my disobedience and I can live in peace. Oh, we know that that isn't the case because we see that when we make this calculation, we disobey God. It brings God's discipline. Jonah thought he was getting away. And next week we're going to learn how he pays the fare. And the downward spiral of sin begins to engulf Jonah. No pun intended there. Literally, he gets engulfed, not by uh, just the discipline of God, but the discipline of a whale that God brings. You need to understand something this morning. Before you put your Bibles away, you need to understand this. If you're running away from God, and you call yourself a child of God, you need to recognize something so very clearly. It may be not as, not as happened yet, but it will. God will deal with you. God will bring you back. If God has plans for you, then he's going to make those plans become a reality. And either you're going to go kicking and screaming, if you will, or you are going to go with full abundance in heart saying, yes, God, I'm ready to go and serve you wherever you would have. Today, are you running from God? Why are you running from God? What is it that you don't want to obey with God's commands? If you are running from God, recognize the life of an individual who ran from God and did not produce very good things. Next, understand that when God speaks, it isn't a multiple choice or an optional answer. When God says jump, we say how high. When God says you're going to go to your office place and you're going to proclaim my name, you're going to serve me in your school, you're going to go off to a foreign mission field, God isn't saying, well, this is an option. God is saying this is a command. You need to do it. And finally, we need to recognize that when we have miscalculations about God, it will bring about not only sin, but God's discipline. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And I thank you for this word that comes from you, this word of the Lord that doesn't just speak to Jonah, but it speaks to every one of us today. Lord, we need to hear a word from you. Lord, we are holding in our hands the word from you. And Lord, we know what you've called us to. We know that you've called us to go into all the world and to make disciples. But Lord, we don't do that. We know that you've called us to holiness and to live as a light in a city. And we don't do that. Lord, we know that you've called us to faithfulness, to live upright and holy lives day in and day out. And yet we don't do that. Instead, Lord, we find ourselves getting as far away from you because your very presence convicts us of our sin. So, Lord, we want to stop running today. We want to stop running from where you're at, and we want to run to you. So, Lord, break our hearts this morning. Teach us the lessons that you taught Jonah, so that in doing so, we will see the the great error in the miscalculations that we make about you, and that we will respond in a biblical way to whatever you've called us to. Because, Lord, we want to be known as good and faithful servants. But, Lord, we are prone to wander. So take that wandering heart, Lord. 
keep it from our, our ways. Allow us to be able to see you and your path of righteousness so that in our living, in our, our preaching of the gospel, that lives would be changed and that you would be brought glory, honor, and praise. Lord, as we leave this place today, change us. Give us opportunities that we would be able to articulate. Let us live differently so that people may know who we are because of the love that we have and the message that we carry. It's only by your grace, it's only by your spirit that we can do this. So send us forth from this place with a call from God to serve you and to proclaim your name to the nations. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go in the peace of the Lord.